Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And if everyone can mute themselves. So we are learning about the Akeda. And last week we did the first Pasuk of Perak Kav Bet. And now we carry on with Pasuk Bet. But let's just recall Pasuk Aleph just to set the scene. Vayhi ha'ila. And it was after these things. And Rashi told us what these things were. Ve'elokim nisa et Abraham. God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham replied, and now we see the details or some of the details of what Hashem is instructing Abraham to do. He said, take, and Rashi is going to tell us that na means please, your son, your only son, whom you love, et Yitzchak, El Eretz HaMaria, and go to the land of Maria, and bring him up there as a offering, as a, well, Ola we normally talk of as a burnt offering, we'll come to that, on one of the mountains, which I will say to you. So there's a lot to unpack in that verse. Let's see what Rashi says. So first of all, he says on the words, Kachna, Ein na, Ela Loshon Bakasha. Na is nothing other than an expression of Bakasha, of request. Now, the first thing to say is that's not literally true, and it's not meant to be literally true. This is an idiom. It means that Na definitely here means a request, because what's the alternative? It could mean Na now, and there are many places in the Chumash where it does mean now. So it's not literally true to say Na cannot mean anything other than Bakasha. But here it does. Here it means a bakasha. So it's like, please take your son, etc. Now, why should Hashem have to say please? Says Rashi, Omar lo. He said to him, bakasha mimacha. It's a request from you. Omed li bazu hanisiyon. Stand for me in this test. In other words, please pass this test. Shalo yamru harishonot lo hayabahem mamash so that they should not say, i.e. people should not say, the earlier tests did not have any substance. So we know there were 10 tests. Rashi doesn't actually count them, um, but it sounds like Rashi goes with the majority or, or, or the, the stream that say that this is the number 10 of the tests. Famously, Rabbeinu Yonah suggests otherwise. We'll come to that later. So Rashi's saying that Hashem has to request because if he fails this test, People will say the previous tests didn't really count. Now, why should that be? And I want to discuss for a moment here what I think is a theme that runs through Rashi on the Akeda. There's at least two other examples of this theme that says why this test is different from all other tests. And in order to explain this, I want to jump to Rashi on Pasuk Yudbet. So I don't like going out of order because we'll come to Yudbet when we come to it in order. But I think it's important to see what Rashi says that Abraham says in Yudbet. So not the first comment of Rashi, but the second comment of Rashi on the words, Ki atayadati. after Hashem has said to him, we all know the story, so I hope I'm not spoiling it. Don't do anything to Yitzchak. Don't sacrifice him. 
because now I know that you are God fearing. Rashi on those words says, Omar Rabbi Abba. Rabbi Abba said, Amar Leo Abraham. Abraham said to him, to Hashem, at that point, I will present before you my literally discussion. What do we mean by discussion? Well, we'll see. Etmol Amartali. Abraham says to Hashem, Yesterday you said to me, Ki yikare lacha zara. Actually, it wasn't yesterday, but in the past, it was at the time when Yishmael was sent away. And Hashem said to Abraham, It's right to send away Yishmael because in Yitzchak will be called your descendants. In other words, Yitzchak will be the father of all the Jewish people who are going to come from you. That's what you said to me literally yesterday, i.e. at an earlier time. And then, says Abraham, you went back and you said, Take your son, which is the only words of Pasuk Bet, meaning offer him up as a sacrifice. So there's a contradiction. And now you say to me, Don't stretch your hand against the lad. And then Hashem's got something to say, and we'll leave that till we get there. But here's the point. Why did I refer to this verse? Because um, I personally have a big problem with those who give alternative interpretations to the Akedah, those who ask, why didn't Abraham pray for Yitzchak? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see perhaps an answer explicitly to that. Why didn't Abraham argue against HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like he, as it were, argued against Hashem when it comes to the apparent destruction of Sodom and Amorah? And the answer is, it's not a question of blind faith. It wasn't that Abraham gave up all his moral responsibility. It's not that Abraham had no idea that he was doing something wrong or all the other interpretations some people try to put on the Akedah. Abraham had a tremendous intellectual difficulty with the Akedah. How do I know? Because Rashi says that Abraham said to Hashem, I don't understand. The crucial thing is, that when did he say that? He said that after the answer to his question was given. In other words, Abraham went along with this tremendous problem, with this tremendous question, but he performed what Hashem wanted him to do. Because that is the nature of the test of the Akedah. And although it's unfashionable to say this, I think the key message, I think the only message from the Akedah is that Abraham's task was to sublimate his own doubts and loyally do what Hashem told him to do. And the very fact that he had doubts is the essential part of the test. If he'd had no doubts at all, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But this, the nature of the test of the Akedah, unlike any of the previous tests, was for Abraham to do something that didn't make sense. Now, I don't want to say that Rashi is saying he also had a moral question, because Rashi isn't saying that. But I think we could say, except moving out from Rashi, that yes, amongst the questions that Abraham had was not just about Hashem seemed to contradict in himself, but how can he do what is so morally repugnant as kill his own, kill anyone, let alone his own child? So there were many questions that, that we can say that Abraham had. But certainly if we're following Rashi, he has the biggest one, which is what's going on with God? God's word is inconsistent. And that for Abraham, who is the one who discovered monotheism, 
and discover the power of God and try to teach that to the world, that's the biggest test of all. You can even say that the first test, which is normally counted as being thrown into the furnace in Urukastim, was not a test of this nature, even though it was obviously very difficult, because intellectually, for Abraham, it was the right thing to do. He was preaching monotheism. The Midrash says that Nimrod objected to that because Nimrod's whole power base, indeed the whole functioning society, was based on polytheism, and it wasn't a um, moral type of polytheism either. It was a pretty bad place to be. It was obvious that the right thing to do for Abraham was to oppose that, even at the risk of his own death. That was no intellectual or moral challenge. And therefore, that's not the same type of test as the Akedah. So when Hashem says in Rashi's words that please pass this test, because if you don't pass this test, what that will mean will be you're saying that you will follow God when God makes sense to you, but you won't follow God when God doesn't make sense to you. And if that's going to be your position, then all the previous tests you pass because they fitted in with your worldview. The real test is to do something which doesn't fit in with your worldview. And again, I think it's very unfashionable to say this, but uh, I believe this is the right approach for a Orthodox Jew who tries to live according to the Torah. Uh, and when people ask me, you know, I understand this mitzvah, it's fine, but I have a real problem with that mitzvah, and that's why I don't think I can do it. The problem with that position is if you're only following the mitzvah that you agree with, then you're not following God, you're following yourself. You're making God in your image rather than our obligation, which is to make ourselves in the image of God. I've probably said this before because it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but I think it, it's, a, it's a major confrontation between Orthodox Judaism in particular, and maybe even religion in general, and our modern uh, zeitgeist where everyone does their own thing and everyone does what seems right to them. Judaism says there are times when you have to do things that don't seem right to you. And that's the message of the Akedah. And that's why Hashem says, uh, sorry, if you don't pass this test, then people say the previous test didn't count. Okay, let's carry on. So Hashem says lots of words here. And Rashi is actually going to talk about the multiplicity of words as a separate subject. But what is this multiplicity of words? And Rashi is bothered. Uh, and it may be that he's bothered simply by the fact we need four different descriptions when we could have just said Yitzchak. Or he's bothered by the fact it says et in each case, which sounds like it's introducing a new thing. Or it's sort of in reverse order. Why does it go Bincha, followed by Yehidcha, followed by Hafta, followed by Yitzchak? Should have started with Yitzchak and then perhaps it could have described Yitzchak. So to answer um, any one of those questions, uh, I noticed that Ruth has just put something on the chat, but I can't see it from my phone. So, Ruth, do you want to uh, unmute yourself and tell us what you wanted to say? Sorry, I'm behind with what you had just said in support of the fascinating approach you just gave. It, also, Avraham was campaigning against child sacrifice. That adds to your case. Yes. So, um, as I say, I don't want to read it into Rashi because I don't think it's there in Rashi. But I think it's legitimate to say, just as Rashi tells us he had an intellectual question, about how God could contradict himself, we can suggest that he also had many moral questions. And the Midrash actually bears this out. The Midrash describes 
um, quite powerfully how the Satan had a discussion with Abraham um, and laid many sort of claims against Abraham going to proceed with the Akedah. And one of them was how you can kill your son that was given to you at the age of uh, the advanced age of 100. And another was, what are you going to, how are you going to face the world after you've killed your son? You're going to be a murderer. And the subtext of that, I think, is you who campaigned to introduce the world of ethical monotheism, you're going to undermine everything you've ever done when you're listed as a murderer. And who is the Satan talking to Abraham? I don't think it's unreasonable to say it's Abraham's inner voice. There are other clues in the Midrash which I think support that. So we can certainly say, Rashi here in one respect, the Midrash in wider respect and our own imagination, that Abraham had very serious questions, but the test was to go ahead nevertheless. Okay, so back to um, the continuation of the Pasuk. So Rashi answers all the questions that I've just suggested by, as it were, parsing this conversation, by doing what Rashi often does, by saying we only have in the text half of a conversation, and Rashi fills in the other half of the conversation, which explains why we need this apparent repetition of references to Yitzchak. So Rashi says like this, on the words, et bincha, Omar lo, Hashem, Abraham said to Hashem, you've said your son, but shenei banim yeshli, I have two sons. So I don't know which one you mean. Omar lo, Hashem said to him, et yechidcha, your only son. Now, we know that there's a clear distinction between Yitzchak and Yishmael. Yitzchak is the son of the wife. Yishmael is the son of the uh, maidservant, the concubine. Yishmael has been sent away. Yishmael was only born really because Sarah couldn't fulfill uh, what she wanted to do, which was to have her own child. And then she did have her own child. And immediately Yishmael is clearly displaced. So that's perhaps what Hashem means when he says about Yitzchak being your only son. However, Abraham doesn't accept that. Amar lo. This one is the only one to his mother, and this one is the only one to his mother. So uh, the message that Rashi is putting into Abraham's words is, I still have two sons. Yishmael really counts. So then uh, Hashem goes, Asher Ahavta, whom you love. Abraham replied, I love both of them. And I'll just pause for a moment. I mentioned this uh, earlier, but I'll, I'll say it again. When Abraham sent Yishmael away uh, in Perak Kaf Aleph Pasuk Yudalad, he didn't give him very much to uh, sustain himself. He gave him a little bit of bread and water. And Rashi says there, Kaf Aleph Yudalad, below Keser, below Zahab, he didn't give him any gold and silver, because he hated him because he'd gone into bad behavior. So we can either say he hated him then, Abraham hated Ishmael, and now Abraham loves him. Why? Well, we, we are many years later, um, and we know from the Midrash that Ishmael sort of pops into Abraham's life, and he's going to very soon, in fact. And we also know from the text that when Abraham died, Yitzchak and Ishmael buried Abraham with the Torah naming them in that order. And Rashi says there, this shows that Yishmael did Teshuvah. So it can be that Abraham hated Yishmael before he did Teshuvah, and now he loves him after he's done Teshuvah. However, I don't think that's what it means. Um, I think that when Rashi says, Son oh, Abraham hated him, it means he loved him less. Uh, and I've said this before, and I think the, the precedent uh, in the Chumash for that is when uh, we were told in Pasha Vayetzeh, 
that Yaakov hated Leah or Leah was hated, it can't mean that Leah was hated. The Yaakov Avina wouldn't hate um, his wife. It means she was loved less. So I think it works out quite well to say that in Kavalov Yudalad, when Rashi says that Abraham hated Yishmael, it means he loved him less. And therefore, it's appropriate for Abraham to say to Hashem, when you say, I should take my son, Asher Ahavta, whom you love, et uh, Shenehem Ani Ohev. I love both of them. So continues the Rashi on our Pasuk, Kafbet Bet. Finally, Hashem says, Amarlo et Yitzchak. Then he says, Yitzchak. So that's why, Avradi, we have all these, uh, these four phrases. So Rashi explains that they're part of a conversation and there's another part of the conversation, which is why all these four stages are needed. However, we still haven't answered the key question, which Rashi now asks, Why did Hashem not reveal it to him at the beginning? In other words, why didn't Hashem just say Yitzchak? That would have saved a lot of time, a lot of bother, a lot of words in the Chumash. And the answer is, not to mix him up suddenly, and let his mind, uh, there's many ways of translating this, but be moved, in other words, for him to be confused, on him, and basically another word to be confused. So the first answer Rashi gives, he's going to give three, in fact, on the question of is Hashem deliberately slow down the message so that Abraham would not be confused. Now, why is it a problem for Avram to be confused? First of all, would Avram be so confused? Well, the point is, there's a possibility that he would be confused. If Hashem says to him, come on, Avram, sacrifice your son, Yitzchak, then Avram would like rush around like a mad thing, get ready to go and not have time to reflect. So Rashi says here, and he's going to say in a moment somewhere else as well, that Hashem deliberately gives him time to reflect. Now, I would suggest, uh, I have to admit this is my shirish, so it might not be worth very much, but I would suggest this is in concert with what I said before about Rashi on uh, explaining that this test is um, qualitatively different from any of the previous tests, because it, the basis of this test is that Avram thinks about it, Avram doesn't understand it, and nevertheless does it. And therefore, in order for the test to be a test, Avram has got to have time to reflect on what he does not understand. If he doesn't have that time, if Hashem just rushes him into it and he doesn't get think because he's just confused, then the test doesn't work because he hasn't got time to formulate his own ideas, why it doesn't make sense before he goes ahead and does it. So I would suggest that is why Rashi says that Hashem is very keen to avoid any possibility that Avram is doing this without thinking. So here, and we'll see um, in Pasuk Dalat, Hashem gives Abraham the time to think about it so that it is a test. That's the first thing that Rashi says. The next thing that Rashi says on the question of why did Hashem not reveal it to him at the beginning? To make him love the mitzvah. Now, it's interesting. We might wonder, how does this make him love the mitzvah? It makes him love Yitzchak. Hashem says to him, your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzchak, every word is going to increase Abraham's love for Yitzchak. So it's possible that we have uh, the wrong text here. It's possible that uh, instead of saying, it could be to make him love him, i.e. to make him love Yitzchak. Uh, and there are those uh, who say that that should be the right text here. 
Um, but if it means to make him love the mitzvah, then we have to explain it like this, that the more he loves Yitzchak, the more his love is aroused for Yitzchak by this succession of words, the more he will feel that Hashem is asking him to do something really, really great, great as in big, great as in difficult. So, and then when he appreciates that Hashem is asking him to do something which is so hard, that becomes uh, for Abraham a mitzvah to love because the greatest mitzvah is for Abraham the most wonderful thing. So because the mitzvah is so hard because he loves Yitzchak so much and Hashem arouses that love for Yitzchak, then the mitzvah becomes greater and therefore it becomes more lovable for Abraham because Abraham is the servant of Hashem who loves serving him. And then he says, and to give him reward for each dibur of a dibur. Now, dibur could be understood as word. And I think personally, I think that fits better. So instead of saying et yitzchak, two words, he says, et bincha, et yichidcha, asher hafta, et yitzchak, eight words. So the mitzvah is uh, elongated in terms of the instruction given. And when Abraham fulfills the instruction, he fulfills each word. So he's fulfilling six words extra than Hashem could have used. So he gets extra schar called dibur of a dibur. Or you can say dibur is like divar, just meaning extra thing. So here Rashi might be talking, if this is the interpretation, Rashi might be talking more generally as saying not just dafka these eight words, but as Hashem spells out each detail, which would include lech lecha al eretz hamariya all those words, all those details, could be included as uh, Now, some um, who aren't here tonight but might be listening to this podcast might ask, why does Rashi have to give three answers? I'm not entirely sure. Um, I didn't get a clear picture from looking at the Meforshim of Rashi. So um, I, I, uh, you can perhaps say that each one is not quite adequate uh, and you possibly could work on that. Um, but I think really they're answering slightly different questions. Um, uh, the, the one about not um, being rushed and confused really could refer to all the details in this pasuk. The one about the chaveh ve'olav the mitzvah refers to specifically the extra details about Yitzchak, who we love, etc. And that also probably refers to all the details. Uh, as you can hear, I'm not quite sure how it all fits together. So I'm going to say this one, it's it needs a little bit more study to work out precisely why Rashi seems to give three answers to one question. Maybe they're three answers ready to three different questions. Okay, the next detail in the Pasuk, Eretz Hamaria, the land of Maria. So what is meant by the land of Maria? Says Rashi, Yerushalayim. So Rashi is telling us a few things with that one word. Um, first of all, he's telling us, where was Maria? You might want to know. You might like get out the atlas and want to pinpoint it. The answer is, it's Yerushalayim. But there's something else clearly that's going on. Because later on, we're going to talk about Har HaMaria, the mountain of Maria. Now we're talking about Eretz HaMaria. What's the difference? So the answer is, Har HaMaria is a particular mountain. Eretz HaMaria is the general locality. So Rashi has to explain that Eretz Hamaria is the general locality, and he does that by saying it's Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is not a mountain. Yerushalayim is a city. It has within it different mountains and hills, one of which we today call Har Habayit, which is also Har Hamaria. So Eretz Hamaria is the general area, 
And Rashi uh, tells us that it's a general area by telling us it's Yerushalayim. Um, there is perhaps uh, another significance Rashi saying this is Yerushalayim. And that is this. The Rambam in Chilchot Beit HaBechira um, in Perak Vav Pasuk Tet Zayim talks about the distinction between the Kedusha of Yerushalayim and the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. There's a great debate that comes up many times in the Gemara about whether the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael uh, is eternal or is time-bound, uh, and therefore whether it applies today and whether it applied at different times in history when the Bet Mikdash was there, when the Bet Mikdash was not there. And the Rambam says there's a distinction between Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim. And the Kedusha of Yerushalayim is eternal, and the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael is not. And why is the Kedusha of Yerushalayim eternal? Because it comes from the Shekhinah, from Hashem's presence being there. Now, when was the first time that Hashem's presence was at this spot? The answer is here at the Akedah. So from the time that Hashem appeared at the Akedah, um, and in particular, when the... Uh, at the end of the story, in the mountain of Hashem, he will be seen. So we'll talk more about that passage when we get there. But Abraham and the Torah is designating the Kedusha, the, the special nature of the uh, mountain because Hashem was seen there at the Akedah. So the Kedusha of Yerushalayim is dependent on the Kedusha of Harabayat, and they both got that Kedusha when the Shekhinah appeared at this moment. So it could be that Rashi says it's Yerushalayim because Yerushalayim, uh, the, the Akedah rather, is an integral part of the story of Yerushalayim. And that's why Rashi mentions it here. And then he says, I can tell you that Yerushalayim and Eretz Maria are the same place from a Pasuk in Debra Yomim. And Rashi says, so that passage, to build the house of Hashem in Yerushalayim, in Ha-Hamaria, tells us that Yerushalayim is the locality of Ha-Hamaria, as Rashi says. Now, why is it called Maria? So Rashi is also going to explain this. Having said it's Yerushalayim, then we've got a better name for this place. We could call it Yerushalayim. Rashi's telling us it's called Yerushalayim. So why is it called Maria? So Rashi here is going to bring two answers, one from the rabbis and one from Onkelos. And Rashi is going to do what he explains, what he does from time to time, which is explain Onkelos for us. So first of all, he says, Rabotenu explain, From there, it, it's named because from there, Hora'ah, teaching, went out to Israel. Hora'ah, same word as Maria. What is the teaching that goes out to Israel? Well, we can offer various explanations. The Yerushalayim was the seat of the Sanhedrin. They sat in the, on Ha Hamaria, half, uh, or no, adjacent to the Bet Migdash. Um, and what went out from the Sanhedrin? Teaching. They taught Torah. They answered questions. They made new Gezerot. They taught Torah to Israel. Ki mitzion Torah. From Sion, which is really the we, we use Sion in a general sense today, but it means ha 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 Maria, and from there goes out uh, Torah to the world. Or you can say 
that the hora'ah that came out from that spot was the hora'ah, was the teaching of the Akedah itself. The message of how we serve Hashem. And I don't want to keep reinforcing this, but, but here's the message of the Akedah. We serve Hashem by doing what he commands, even when we don't understand it. That, you could say, is the hora'ah yotza'ah l'Yisrael. So um, either way, either it's referring to the teaching of the Sanhedrin, which will come on that spot, or it's referring to what Abraham taught us then at that spot, or both. The Unculus Tirgamo. So uh, at this point, Unculus translates it. And again, I want to say, as I've said before, that Rashi sometimes sees it as his job to translate for us or to explain for us Unculus. Um, especially when Unculus says something which is different from what Rashi said up till now. So, Unculus Tirugamo al Shem Avoda Hakatoret, because of the service of the Katoret. Now, the Katoret was offered in the Bet Mikdash um, every day, and it created this beautiful aroma that the Gemara says could be heard, uh, could be smelt rather very, very far away. Interestingly, if you look at Unculus, it doesn't quite say that. It says, Eretz HaMaria, he translates as Ara Pulchana. Now, Ara Pulchana means the land of Pulchana is avoda, is service. But there's no mention in the um, Unculus of Ktoret. But Rashi says, when Unculus says Pulchana is the translation of Maria, he's thinking of Ktoret because Shiyesh Bo, there is in it, in the Ktoret, Mur, which means Mur, not quite sure what that is, to be honest. Nerd, and I don't know what that is either. It's another spice. Bashar Basamim, and other spices. So, Onkelos calls it Eretz Pulchana, which will in Hebrew, Eretz Avodah, the place of the divine service, the service in the Bet Midash. Rashi says, when he says Pulchana is Maria, he doesn't mean that that's the translation of Maria. It means that's what the word Maria alludes to. How does Maria allude to part of the service in the Bet Mikdash? Because Maria has the word mor as part of it, and mor is one of the ingredients of the Ketoret. And that's why Rashi says that what Unculus means is the avoda of the Ketoret. And uh, finally, no, not finally, the next part of Rashi on this passage, Vaha Alehu, and bring him up. Hashem says to Abraham that he should take Yitzchak to Eretz Hamaria and bring him up. Says Rashi, Lo Amar Lo Shachatehu. Rashi, uh, Hashem did not say slaughter him. Because it wasn't Hashem's desire that he should be slaughtered. But to bring him up to the mountain, to make him into an offering. And once he's been brought up, Hashem will say to him, Hashem will say to Abraham, take him down again. So, says Rashi. Hashem uses the word Vaha'alehu carefully and precisely. It doesn't mean sacrifice him. Hashem deliberately didn't say slaughter him because he never wanted Abraham Yitzhak to be slaughtered. So he uses the word Vaha'alehu, which Abraham misunderstands. Abraham thinks it means offer him up and kill him because that's what you do to sacrifices. But Hashem could say as if, aha, I didn't say that, got you. And this is very strange. It's very strange that the whole Akedah should be based on a deliberate misinterpretation. 
But Hashem is like sneakily using the wrong word so he can like get out of it at the last minute. I didn't say so to him. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. That's not how Hashem operates. And that's not what the Akedah is all about. And I would say the reason that the Hashem uses the word Vaalehu and Abraham interprets it as sacrificing is because Hashem wants him to be, uh, wants Abraham to completely give over Yitzchak to, Ash, to Hashem. Make him into an Ola. An Ola, we translate as a burnt offering, but it's actually something that goes up. And it entirely goes up. The difference between an ola and other types of offerings is for an ola, the animal is entirely burnt. That's why we call it a burnt offering. It ascends in smoke. That's why it's ola from the word aliyah. So what does it mean to make something into a burnt offering? It means to give it over entirely. If you bring a shlomim, for instance, a peace offering, the person who brings the peace offering eats part of the peace offering. They get a nice juicy steak out of it. Um, the whole idea that we can serve Hashem while physically enjoying ourselves, that's a profound idea of the Torah. And, and other religious approaches um, find a difficulty in understanding that. But there's not, we don't only bring a shlomim, which we get enjoyment from. Sometimes we bring an ola, which we don't get any benefit from because it entirely goes to Hashem. That's the point that Hashem is saying. The shechita or the non-shechita will come later. It turns out that shechita is not involved. But what Hashem is saying is, I request of you to give over Yitzchak entirely. That's Baha Alehu. Rashi is pointing out, but it doesn't necessarily mean Shechita. But it's not that Hashem is playing a trick. The message, and here I go back again to the message of the Akedah, which is the complete, Hashem is asking for the complete devotion of Abraham. Without any caveats, without any qualifications, without any, well, perhaps I can find a cooler or a heter, or I can uh, you know, find a way that I don't have to wash and bench, I'll call it mazonot bread, or, or all that sort of thing. Hashem says, here's the test. You give over Yitzchak entirely. So Rashi's pointing out, but it doesn't necessarily mean shechita. But what does it mean? It means v'ha'alehu. That's the test. Next part of Rashi. So Hashem says, On one of the mountains, which I will say to you. So again, he's going to end up at Ha-Hamaria, but Hashem hasn't said that yet. He said, go to Eretz Hamaria, which is the general vicinity. And then I will tell you which mountain. Says Rashi, Hashem makes Sadikim wonder. Or uh, there's another gear in Rashi, which probably appears in your in, in your books. Mashhei hat sadikim. He makes the sadikim wait. In other words, he doesn't give them all the information at once. He gives, he tells them the first part of the instruction: take Yitzchak, go to Eretz Hamaria. You know where that is, but you'll have to wait until the next instruction for the final destination. So Hashem makes the sadikim either wonder or makes them wait. And after that, he reveals it to them. And this is all to increase their reward. So if he can make it into two separate mitzvot, then there's, two, there's more reward. But I don't think that's the main point. I think the main point is the very act of uncertainty makes the task harder and therefore makes the reward greater. So Hashem is telling Abraham to go on a magical mystery tour, to not know where he's going. 
and to show again, I keep coming back to this point because I think Rashi is focusing again and again on this point that Abraham is required to show absolute loyalty to Hashem to the extent that Hashem will say, Go, but I'm not even telling you where to go. And then Abraham, Hashem, uh, sorry, Rashi has said this is a general process for Sadiqim. He didn't say it's in reference to Abraham alone. So, in order to prove that, Rashi has to show how other Sadiqim are treated in a similar way. So the first is, to the land which I will show you. Now, interestingly, it's the who's being treated in this way? It's Abraham. It, when Abraham was told at the very beginning of Hashem's encounter with him, Lech Lecha, uh, at the beginning of Perug Yud Bet, Lech Lecha me'artzcha, me'valadcha, me'beitavicha, el ha'aretz asher areka, to the land which I will show you. So again, Hashem says, here's the starting point, Leave where you're now, either uh, Orkastim or Haran, depending on whom you follow, um, and then go to a place which I will tell you, but I'm not going to tell you yet. Same idea. Hashem doesn't give him all the answers straight away. Another example, says Rashi, regarding Yonah, you shall go to, uh, you shall call against it the calling, but Hashem hasn't told him the details of what the calling will be. Hashem said to Yonah, go to Nineveh, and then I've got to tell you what to, what to say to them. Um, as it happens, uh, Yonah's not happy about that. He doesn't go to Nineveh at all, well, not in the first instance. But again, Rashi brings us an example of where the full details of Hashem's command are not specified at the beginning. Another example of Hashem having a way of dealing with Sadiqim to make them wait uh, until they get the final part of the instruction. Now, since Rashi has said, uh, let's look at the first command to Abraham. Go, El Eretz Asher Areka. It's worth noting that Rashi himself on Perak Yudbet says something of interest to us at the moment because he says a similar thing there. On the words Asher Areka, which I will show you. So I'm looking at Yudbet Pasuk Bet. Although the comment, the words come in Pasuk Aleph, Rashi's comment on them is at the end of Rashi on Pasuk Bet. And on the words of Sheh Areka, Rashi says, lo gila lo miyad. Hashem did not reveal to him the land, i.e. the destination, immediately. And uh, I'll just come back in a moment. But then he gives this general principle and he gives other examples of people who were not given the full instruction at the beginning. And one is Avraham at the Akedah and the other is Yonah. So this comment of Rashi pretty much matches up the comment of Rashi we've just seen. But look why Rashi says Hashem did this. Why didn't Hashem tell Abraham exactly where he's going at the beginning of Lech Lecha? He says, says Rashi, uh, and this again is Yud Bet Bet, towards the end of the comment of Rashi, to make it beloved in his eyes. Interestingly, it doesn't say to make the mitzvah beloved in his eyes, to make it. So that could be the mitzvah or it could be the land beloved in his eyes. Uh, and the fact that it doesn't say the mitzvah there is a support for those who say that Rashi's text uh, uh, that we've been learning, that to make, the, um, uh, to make the mitzvah beloved is not necessarily the right text. Anyway, and to give him reward for each dibur of a dibur. Our Rashi, sorry. Um, had pretty much the same question. Why did Hashem give all these words before coming to the point? Rashi, as I said, gave three answers. And here in Lech Lecha, Rashi gives two of those three answers. He gives the answer of 
to give him to make him love either the land or the mitzvah check same as in our case he gives him the answer he gives rashi gives the answer of to give exactly the same words in our case check but what does rashi not say rashi doesn't say that hashem deliberately spelt it out slowly so that Abraham wouldn't get confused. Why? Because it's only by the Akeda that Hashem needs Abraham to think and to not understand as a result of his thinking, because as I keep saying, because I believe Rashi keeps saying, this is the test of the Akeda. The test of was a big test, but it wasn't like test number 10. It didn't ask Abraham to go against, to do something that Abraham couldn't understand. On the contrary, Hashem spelled out why it's a good idea to, and makes a lot of sense to move to a land. Because, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. All good things. That's a good bet, possible bet. All good things, all logical things. So there was no worry, there was no issue that Abraham will think this doesn't make sense. There was no part of the test that Abraham had to think this doesn't make sense. And that's why Rashi says uh, in by Lechacha, there was no relevance to Hashem giving him time to think. But by the Akedah, he gives not two answers, but three answers to the question of why does Hashem spell out slowly what the instruction is to be? And that third answer is that Abraham shouldn't be confused because, as I've said before, um, now probably repeatedly, that <clears throat> Abraham needs to be able to think this doesn't make sense for the test to be a test. Okay, that concludes Rashi on Pasuk Bet. So now we're ready for Pasuk Gimel, which says, Ve'yash came Abraham Baboka. Abraham got up early in the morning, Ve'yachavosh et chamoro, and he saddled his donkey, Ve'yakach et shenei na'arav ito, and he took his two lads with him, Ve'et Yitzchak Beno, and Yitzchak his son. And Rashi will help us with this word, but we know it means to chop or to split woods, wood for the offering. And he got up, and he went to the place that Hashem had said to him. So Rashi has a few things to say, not as long as he had on the previous Pasuk. So the first is Vayashkem. Nizdarez mitzvah. He was enthusiastic about the mitzvah. What is Rashi telling us? Rashi is telling us why the Torah points out that Abraham got up early in the morning. Uh, I always get nervous of him giving a straightforward answer to the question of why does Rashi say this? But I think we can give a straightforward answer to the question of why does Rashi say this? Why do we need to know Abraham's daily schedule? What does it matter what time he got up? Maybe he fancied a lion. Maybe he couldn't sleep. What, what relevance is it to us? In other words, maybe sometimes he fancied a lion, but today he didn't. No, says Rashi. The, the Torah is telling us that he got up early. There is a significance. And the significance is this shows his enthusiasm to do the mitzvah, i.e. to pass the test. So he's being asked to do something which, as we've discussed, is very, very difficult for him. And nevertheless, he's so keen to do it because he's so keen to fulfill the, the commandment of his commander that he gets up early in the morning. The Yachabosh, and he saddled his donkey. Again, we would ask, or Rashi would ask, what's the significance? If you're going on a donkey, it's got to be saddled. 
Um, I don't know very much about how you ride donkeys, but I guess you don't ride them bareback. You need a saddle. So again, we can ask, why does the Torah need to tell us that he put a saddle on the donkey? And the answer is, who but atzmo? It says he himself saddled his donkey. And he didn't command it to one of his servants. Avraham was a very wealthy man. Avraham had a big household. Um, and I mentioned this because it's going to be relevant in a moment, that when Avraham fought against the four kings, he took with him, says the, says the pastor, 318 of his lads. Now, Rashi also says maybe that's Gematria for Eliezer, and it wasn't 318 lads, it was just one Eliezer. But it sounds like he's got a lot of people around him. He had vast numbers of flocks, and we know he had servants for many indications. So we also know that normally, if you've got lots of servants, you don't saddle your own donkey. I mean, I don't know, because I don't know much about saddling donkey, but, but it makes sense. And it certainly makes sense that that would be the norm Rashi understands. And therefore, here we have an exception to the norm. So the Torah is telling us there was something exceptional, that he himself saddled his donkey. Why is that significant? Says Rashi, et hashura. So literally, love spoils the line. Or perhaps slightly uh, idiomatically, love, love for Hashem, or love for Hashem's mitzvah, means the normal rules of protocol get waived, get pushed aside. In Abraham's enthusiasm to do the mitzvah, number one, he gets up early, and number two, rather than rely on servants to do their stuff, he wants to do it himself. He is so keen to fulfill every part of the mitzvah, including the preparation, therefore, including putting a saddle on his donkey, that he does that himself, even though he has many servants whom he could have chosen. Then we read, Et Shanei Na'arav, his two lads. And Rashi says, Yishmael Eliezer. The two lads who went with Abraham and Yitzhak were Yishmael and Eliezer. Why does Rashi say this? So Rashi has a habit of identifying people. Rashi believes that the Torah is coming to give us more detail rather than less. And very frequently, Rashi will say, who was Yosef's interpreter? It wasn't just somebody, it was Menashe. Who was the lad who helped Abraham um, entertain the guests? It wasn't just anybody, it was Yishmael. And again and again, he does that. Now, normally, he does that as a general rule, that if the definite article, the word the in English or ha in Hebrew, precedes the interpreter or the lad, then it means somebody whom we know about. And Rashi will then match it up with an existing figure. Now here, when it says Na'arav, doesn't quite say the lads, although you could say his lads is, is the sort of possessive pronoun for filling the same role as a definite article by indicating that it's specific lads. Um, I'm not sure if you can stretch it to say it's like the lads, but there is a, another thing that we can say. As I just said, we know that Abraham's household was very big. So if he took lads, there would be lots of lads, but his two lads implies that there were two with special significance. So who are the two members of Abraham's household, not Yitzchak, below, if you like, the level of Yitzchak, whom we know about? Answer, Yishmael and Eliezer. So effectively, by saying it's two lads, his two lads, when we know there was a multiplicity to choose from, 
we're being told that it must be two of whom we know some significance. <laughs> and it turns out to be, therefore, the two people we've known about in Abraham's household, and nobody else has been named, Ishmael and Eliezer. Now, what's the significance of Ishmael and Eliezer? First of all, what's Ishmael doing there? Didn't we learn how Abraham sent Ishmael away? And uh, he, he went and lived in the desert and started shooting arrows at people. And his mother found a wife for him for, from Egypt and they like presumably settled down. Well, no, because the Midrash says, as I mentioned earlier, that Ishmael did Teshuvah and Ishmael came back not necessarily to reside permanently, but Yishmael had an ongoing connection with Abraham Avinu. That's what the Midrash says. And that's the Midrash that Rashi is building on here. So Yishmael is not out the picture. He comes back in the picture. Again, it's probably easier to understand if we say that Yishmael has already done Teshuvah and he's repudiated some of the bad things that Sarah observed him being involved with. And he's now a more welcome member of Abraham's household. He clearly is not on the level of Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the key focus of the Akedah, and Yishmael, according to Rashi, is just one of the lads. The next thing to say is, I think it's very significant that Yishmael and Eliezer are accompanying Abraham because they both represent different types of non-members of Abraham's immediate family. So Yishmael is the relative of Abraham, but he's the one who doesn't make it as the ancestor of the Jewish people. So he's close to the Jewish people, but not close enough. Eliezer is not Jewish at all. Eliezer is not part of Abram's family, he's part of Abram's household. He comes, he's a Canaanite, according to Rashi. He comes from a completely different um, tribe altogether. We said earlier that, uh, uh, based on Rashi in Pasuk Aleph, um, and also Rashi in uh, Pasuk um, Yudbet, that, that, that Hashem says that the purpose of the Akedah is to answer two um, accusations. Uh, the Acha Hadabrim Ha'ela, Rashi said in Pasuk Aleph, after these things referred to the conversation between the Satan and Hashem about the worthiness of Abraham, and the conversation between Yishmael and Yitzchak about who um, had uh, offered more. Ishmael at his Brit at the age of 13, and Yitzchak says, I'm prepared to offer my entire life if Hashem asks for it. In each case, we're asking, what is so deserving about Avram? Why does Avram deserve to be Avram Avinu? Why do we, his descendants, deserve to be Am Yisrael? Is it, uh, and the, the question is being asked by Yishmael, the other nation, and it's also being asked by the Satan, which I would suggest is asking about the inherent worthiness of Abraham as an individual. Here, it's not quite the same parallel. We don't have the Satan and Yishmael being represented as part of the party to the Akedah, but we have two types of non-Abramatic family. We have the one who just missed out, and we have the wider non-Jewish world. And I would suggest that the significance that Yishmael and Eliezer are the Akedah, because Yishmael, the one who didn't quite make it, and Eliezer, the one who never had a chance of making it, they need to see for themselves how Abraham passes the test. So I would suggest that we could suggest that Rashi is saying they are symptomatic of the two types of non-Jewish nations, the one who was close and the one who was far. They come along to witness the achievement of Abraham and to answer the question, why is Abraham and the nation that he founds worthy of special treatment? Now, Rashi adds something. Why do you need two lads at all? Why can't you have one lad or no lads? 
So Rashi says there's a general principle about important people need an escort. And he says, She'ein adam chashuv rashai below anashim. A person of stature is not allowed to go out onto a journey without two people accompanying. Why do you need two people? That if one of them needs to relieve themselves, and goes a distance away, then the second one will still be with him, with the Adam Hashav. So that's why you need two, because one might respond to a call of nature, and then you still would have one. What is interesting is that elsewhere in the Chumash, Rashi learns a similar idea, but a little bit differently. Somebody else had two lads. That is Bilam. Bilam in in Sefer Bamidbar, Pasuk Kafbet, Pasuk Kafbet, he goes with Ushneina Arav Imo. He's riding on his donkey, and there were two lads with him. And Rashi there, Bamidbar Kafbet Kafbet, says, from here we see that an important person who goes out on a journey must go with him two lads, two, two men. To serve him, to minister to him, if you like. And then they revert and serve each other. What's interesting is Rashi seems to be saying a similar thing, but then deviates. In both cases, in and in Rashi says, we see a general principle that an Adam Chashev has to have two people with him. That's far the same. But then there's a change. In in our Pasuk, it's because one of them might have to go off for a moment and the other will still be there. In Pashas Balak, in the case of Bilam, Rashi says something different, that the two need to serve each other. Everyone needs someone to look after them. So the Adam Chashev, the important person, has two people looking after them. And the two people, they can each look after each other. So they've each got one person looking after them. Now, it could be that Rashi says different things in different places. That's the way the Mizrahi learns. And he says, basically, don't get too excited about it. Rashi will learn one thing here and one thing there. And sometimes maybe the two, if you like, um, sort of extrapolate uh, to each other. And, and really, we should be learning both things in both cases. But Rashi says one of the things here and one of the things there. But you could also say, and I think this is more um, a testament to Rashi's genius, that the situation with Bilam is different from the situation with Avraham, because there are other people accompanying Bilam. There's all the officers of Moab who go with him. Um, as we see from the story there, he wasn't going alone. So therefore, the need for two lads to be with him is not because if one has to go away, the other will still be there as, a, as an escort, as a protector, because there'll be other people escorting Bilam. So there's a different situation, a different scenario about the two lads in the case of Bilam from the two lads in the case of Abraham. In the case of Abraham, there's nobody else there. there there's Yitzchak, but I think he's, he's treated differently. So Abraham needs those two lads to protect him, and he needs two in case one has to go off for a moment. Whereas Bilam doesn't need protection, he doesn't need an escort per se, therefore it's a different reason why he needs the two lads there, and that would explain why Rashi says something different in Bamidba to what he says here.
So we have an, oh no, one more part of the Pasuk. I think we can just put it in tonight. So on the word Vaivaka. So what does Vaivaka mean? Or maybe that's not what Rashi's question is, because the next word Rashi says is Targum Vatsalach. So it may be that Rashi thinks the word Vaivaka is uh, rare and is not easily comprehended. So Rashi turns us to the Targum. And he says it means Vatsalach in Aramaic. And what does Vatsalach mean? Kamo Vatsalchu Hayaradein. They crossed the Yaradein. Now, the, sorry, the, the uh, Tanakh talks about people crossing the Yaradein quite a few times. In every case except one, the verb used is Vayavor. They pass through the Yaradein. In this case, in Shmuel Bet, uh, Yudtet, Yudchet, when it talks about Shuim ben Gera, he's trying to apologize to David for being nasty to him previously. And he's in a hurry. And he crosses the Yaradein with his men. And there the verb is Vatsalchu Hayaradein. And Rashi says that means Loshon Bikua, which takes us back to our, the word in our Pasuk. When um, Rashi adds in French, Fondra Balaz. So, it could be that we know what Vayivakar means. It means he chopped the wood into. And Rashi is helping us understand the Targum. The Targum chooses to translate it as Vatsalach. What does Vatsalach mean? Rashi refers us to the Pasuk in Shmuel Bet to tell us that it means chopping. Because when the people, Shimi Bengera and his team, were rushing through the Yaradain, it was like they were chopping the Yaradain in two. Um, and that's an expression of bikua, which we know all along means cleaving, chopping in two. And the French helps us understand that as well. Or we can say that Rashi knows and we know what bikua means. It means chopping. But Rashi is helping us understand the Targum as he sometimes does. OK, I think that's a place to pause. Um, we only cover two pasukim tonight, but that's because the two pasukim were very weighty. And that's because the subject of the Akedah is very weighty. We will carry on next week. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.